Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic, bit of a mouthful, Zacharias's temple, Jacob's wilderness, and the shepherd's field. What we're doing tonight, we're in a series of wrap-ups of previous topics that we've been over. And this is the wrap-up of topic four, which is about the Bible. So this is a particularly challenging evening because it's trying to wrap up uh, a Bible study about the Bible. It just <laughs> seems like the degree of difficulty, you know, the likelihood of failure is extremely high. Um, but I, I think a fun way to do that has occurred to me. And so that's what we'll be doing tonight. So if you wish to join me on that journey, good friends, please do. And let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We pray for your presence among us tonight, Lord, as we turn the pages of your word, seeking to know you, seeking to know your mind and your heart, seeking to know the nature of this revelation that you've given us. Amen. Amen. Sending love to those of you out there online and on the phone and getting the audio and here in the room. So nice to see everybody. And thinking about the word, and obviously the two grand positions is sort of artificial a little bit to set these up as opposing each other. But there's basically what you would call biblical literalism, which is the idea that the Bible says what it means, means what it says. The creation story happened exactly as described in Genesis. The miracles all literally happened, the virgin birth, of so on, you know, all those things happened exactly as written. And you can understand how that point of view came about. It's interesting, though, that it only seemed to come about about 100 years ago. It's, it's quite a recent, in 2,000 years of Christianity, we only just recently had that thought. Uh, I read something just the other day where, where somebody said, I think it was an article in The Economist that said that, the, um, that the, the Genesis story, if that is a creation story, surely it's written in parables, they said. Um, that was interesting, and just episode 337 on April 18th was called Nothing But Parables, all about the, the word and indications in there that it's all written in parables. So what I'd like to do first here um, is kind of just go through certain points that we've covered so far in the Bible study before, and then I want to dig into these three stories about Zacharias' temple, Jacob's wilderness, and the shepherd's field, and uh, look at that. So the place I want to start is at John, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Very important statement. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and this whole story, if you look back in John 1 there, is all about Jesus coming into the world, and it refers to him as the word. There was this word that was in the beginning with God, but then it was born in the flesh. And so if you associate the word with the Bible, which a lot of people do, not just Swedenborgians, uh, then Jesus has something to do. Jesus is, as they say, a, a walking Bible. He, he's the Bible made flesh. And the reason that's of interest to me tonight in particular is that human beings, 
uh, certainly from Swedenborg's perspective, and to me it's sort of an experiential thing, human beings have depth. Like the question of, is the word just flat as a pancake, it has nothing inside it? Well, are human beings that way? Is there nothing inside a human being? Or is there a depth? The Bible talks about the fact that we have an inner self and an outer self, uh, and these two can be in quite different conditions and so on. It sort of explains how you can kind of... Um, I, I had a friend once who said, uh, was laughing, and laughed and laughed and laughed, and then said, all of a sudden, just hilarious laughter, and then immediately switched gears and said, oh, I wish I felt fully involved with my laughter. <laughs> and um, uh, so it was sort of hilarious. You know, there's two parts in there. One is laughing and another one is saying, well, I'm not laughing, you know. And so it wants a turn as soon as the laughing stops to, to get out there and say something. So the idea that the word has depth, to me, it argues for that, that the word made flesh. You know, Jesus certainly had depth. He had all kinds of depth. Uh, so why would the word, if he's an embodiment of the word, why would uh, the word not have depth? But it does raise the question of how a book can be human. You know, what are you talking about? That, that, you know, and we explored that in, in a particular Bible study a while back. And I think the short story is that if that book reflects the divine mind, the thing that makes us human... Uh, Swedenborg says, is that we have a will and an intellect. So there's some love that drives us, some desire or passion or something, and there's some understanding that we have, and that's what makes us human. And that scripture reflects a, 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 a passion and a truth. You know, there's a mind in there. I like that idea that there are layers of depth and there, there's actually a mind in there. I'm just reminded of Isaiah 55 that I'd love to go read real quick here. Uh, Isaiah says, so about in the middle of your Bible, and uh, maybe a little bit to the right of the middle. And Isaiah 55, uh, let's start at verse 8 right there. It's just a fun, fun passage. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This speaks to depth, I think, you know, that the divine thoughts are higher than our own thoughts. Go on. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, we, on one occasion, we did a whole Bible study on those few verses, just really analyzing how it talks about the rain and the snow, and they don't come down for no reason, and they don't go back just pointlessly. They're supposed to yield this seed, this bread, they're there to do something. And then for the Lord to say, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it'll accomplish what I sent it for. It's, gonna, it's, it's actually, uh, although it looks passive, the book is actually active. And when we present ourselves to it, it's trying to do things. It's trying to plant things in us. So talk about depth. You know, it has a purpose of, of salvation, it has a wisdom about how to do that. 
So that is a sense in which the book is human. It's more human than we are, and it works on us when we, in its wisdom, when we think we're just reading it and kind of puzzled and trying to figure out what it's saying. Uh, the word is a spiritual revelation, and uh, in my humble opinion, I think anything else would be an oxymoron. Like, in other words, a revelation is by nature something spiritual. Uh, you don't need someone to reveal, you know, God doesn't need to bow the heavens and reveal to us what the stock market did today. We've got a way of finding that out. Uh, we don't need God to bow the heavens and tell us how rocks work or something, you know, like we can figure that out. What the word is there to reveal is something spiritual that we can't figure out without it. And it's a spiritual revelation. So I think, a, a, you know, painting with a broad brush, uh, some readings of scripture go uh, off track because they think, oh, surely this is about, you know, politics or it's about something worldly. It's about money. You know, a lot of people think the Bible is a get rich thing. And if you're doing it right, you should be getting rich or something. Well, that's a worldly thing, like to reveal how to get rich. That's kind of a worldly thing. But the, what it's trying to reveal is a spiritual thing about life after death. Um, Swedenborg makes this statement about the Ten Commandments, that he sees the Ten Commandments as an encapsulation of the whole word. And he says that the Ten Commandments uh, externally, just taken on their face value, they contain everything about how to love your neighbor and how to love God. And then he says, inwardly, they contain, and then he just gives two words, absolutely everything. That's what's inside the Ten Commandments. Everything is inside the Ten Commandments. Um, that's pretty cool. And I, he already had me at the external meet. Like, that's pretty good if it has the whole how to love neighbor, how to love God, you know, let alone that it contains absolutely everything. And that's just 180 words in one particular part of the Old Testament. Well, it occurs two times, but, you know. Uh, so Swedenborg's all about, oh, no, there's huge, huge depth. If you read his first chapter of Secrets of Heaven or Arcana Celestia, he talks about Genesis, and at the end of that chapter, he says, what I've given you here is just a tiny fraction of a fraction of what's in there, you know, and yet he writes these 4,562 pages, big Latin pages that turn into twice as many English pages of, of uh, what's just in those two little Bible books. Um, we did have fun Bible study a while ago about how many places, it's a little bit like that Nothing But Parables episode, uh, how many times the Bible literally says, I contain more that meets, than meets the eye. You know, it, it's often saying uh, there are multiple layers to this. I want to take you to just one example now. Uh, look in Luke. This is a really fun one. Uh, Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 and 26. Just a brief little blurt there. But someone stands up and is trying to test the Lord and asks him this really huge loaded question. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what 
<clears throat> what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer back then was a lawyer in the law of Moses, you know, like that, that, that was the law. He knew the rabbinical law and all that. What should I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus answered his question with a question, with two questions. What did he say? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Oh, now those are two questions. What is written there, and then what's your reading of it? In the old King James, uh, how do you read is the second, you know. So what, what's written there, doesn't that suggest that there's more than one layer to it? Like, he, he can obviously, all those people had memorized everything in the law. You know, oh, he, he could rhyme off the whole thing for you. But how do you read, you know, there's different interpretations, you know. So there's, there's layers to this thing, and how you read is really, really important. We did one very silly Bible study a long time ago where I brought in a bunch of uh, different pairs of glasses to reflect different types of reading. Some were broken and some were sunglasses. I don't even remember what they all were. But uh, it was all about how do you read. Another important principle to Swedenborg is he sees this temple in the spiritual world that has now it is allowed written right over it. And what that's about, he says, is that now it is allowed to enter with understanding into the mysteries of faith. And he's talking about the mysteries of Scripture. We are allowed to read Scripture in a rational way. There's been kind of an approach for a long time of like, oh, it's who knows, just read it, read a chapter a day, don't think about it too much, it's, it's a mystery. Uh, but Swedenborg says, no, we can, we can try to get in there and read it rationally. What Swedenborg gets out of his rational reading is that the work is written in correspondences. A, a lot of people have thought over the years, too, that Scripture has some sort of allegory in it. Uh, this probably stands for that. I know that there was a Catholic interpretation that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and this whole mob comes against him and it, it turns out they have two swords, that the church interpreted that that's the sword of the church and the sword of state. Church and state, that's what those two swords are. Well, that's an interesting reading. It's just sort of, let's call this sword this and that sword that. But that's not the way Swedenborg reads it. To him, if you want to know what a sword meant in Scripture, you'd have to look at every instance of sword or many, many different instances and look at what they were doing. And he would say, no, correspondences is actually a language. It's not just in that particular passage something means that. Sword actually means truth, a truth fighting on behalf of love or falsity fighting on behalf of evil, and it can have that opposite meaning. But all through Scripture when you see a sword, if you think that, you'll have a greater understanding because it's not just an arbitrary set of symbols and here they mean this and here they mean that. It's a language, and every time it comes up, it means either the good version of that or the opposite negative version of it. But it's a very consistent language. That to me is why, if you've ever read Swedenborg's works, it's particularly uh, Secrets of Heaven, but also his Apocalypse Explained and other works, uh, he'll say, well, here's what a gate means or something. And then he'll give you 20 passages about gates. And you wonder, well, why? I, don't, I didn't remember those passages. I don't know those passages. I don't know why you're telling me this. But it finally dawned on me, oh, I think maybe what he's doing is he's showing you that gate means the same thing in 20 places. It doesn't, written over thousands of years, but all those gates have the same kind of meaning. 
And it is pretty amazing. That's the sort of a method that we've been using in Bible study for years. Uh, so I think that's a really cool idea that, that it's not just um, uh, arbitrary meanings or allegories or something. You know, there's some living kind of relationship between the text and meaning. And that raises another question that bothers a lot of people. It's like, well, if it has this inner meaning, then why not say what you meant instead of shrouding it in this language that can be easily understand, understood. Like uh, from a Swedenborgian standpoint, if there's only one God in there, and there's three aspects to that one God, but if there's only one God, why all this talk about Jesus praying to the Father, and the Father, and one sitting on the throne, and the Lamb, and the, you know, why do all that? Like, isn't that misleading? Aren't you taking the risk of people misunderstanding? And I'm still working on that one, but Swedenborg... Uh, <laughs> says that the, uh, it has to be written in this external language because the idea is to unite us with the heavens, which whoever thought about that, but that the heavens are reading the same book and they read it in a spiritual way and we read the concrete thing that's written there about iron and, and salt and sheep and grapes and, and uh, those two come together. If, if ours had been written the same way the inside one was, you wouldn't have this coming together of these different levels in the same way. And the other thing is that what lies in the Word is so precious that it needs protecting. It's not something that you just sort of, you know, just expose, just, just like you don't sort of go around with your, you know, the pin to your bank card tattooed on your forehead, I hope. You know, uh, there, there's things that you protect. There's things in the Word that, that need to be protecting. So he says in Isaiah 4, I think it is, over all the glory there should be a covering. Um, so that's just a quick whip through different ideas of what's going on. And so by being written in a concrete way, the Bible will say things like God is angry, you know, or tells the children of Israel to destroy, you know, says thou shalt not kill, and then says, hey, did you kill all the Amalekites yet? You didn't, that was bad. You know, and so you got crazy making sort of contradictions in the literal sense. But Swedenborg's idea of the inner sense is so satisfying to me because I can't, I, as I've said before, I'm like a child watching, you know, Olympic level ping pong or something. I, I don't know what's going on in there. It's just like so fast. I, I'm lost in there most of the time. But it helps to contextualize and help me understand some of what I'm reading. And uh, I wanted to look at these, these stories. These stories are kind of fun. So let's go back to Luke chapter 2. We're already in Luke there. I think I'm going to take them in reverse order of what I had in the title. But uh, let's just think about these fairly familiar stories. Let's do 2 uh, verses 8 to 18. How about this? Just the Christmas story. You're very familiar with it, I'm sure. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, these are the shepherds in the field that I alluded to in the title. So here are the shepherds, and they're in their field. And what are they doing out there? And behold, an angel... No, in oh, verse oh, sorry. Eight, they were, what they're was the verb? keeping watch. Keeping watch. And before that? Uh, living. Yeah, they live there. Right. They've been in that field before, Right. And the old King James, they're abiding out there. So that is just where they, they live. Okay, go mm -hmm. on. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. Interesting. So they were afraid, okay? Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. In this hemisphere, it's so strange to hear these words when it's warm out, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Go on. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Okay, so the thought that came to me, it was a different thought than I'd had before, but the thought that came to me here was that uh, these shepherds, was this their first time in a field? No. They'd been in a field before. They were in a field every night. Go out there every night, take care of the flocks, same old, same old. How are you, Phil? I think they were mostly named Phil back then. You know, Hi, Phil. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? And, you know, a lot of Bobs back then. And, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, they went out there every single night. Had to be, you know, you're a little tense in case there's a wild animal that attacks the, the herd under the cover of darkness, you know, the sheep and everything, the flock. But... Uh, for the most part, it's got to be deadly boring, like hard to stay awake because you're just out there. Every, this is what you do every night. You've done it thousands and thousands of times, you know, your whole life. Been out there since you were a kid taking care of the sheep. But all of a sudden, one night, it's a completely different experience. The sky lights up. And all of a sudden, what's going on out in this field where you're just out in the middle of nowhere taking care of the sheep is all of a sudden, there's a bunch of angels. And instead of saying rather, you know, I don't know, expounding sort of uh, broad truths about the nature of reality or something like that, they're talking about stuff that's going to happen to you. You're going to go down into town. You're going to see a little child. This is what that's all about. Me, all of a sudden, the field that was just a boring old field fighting to stay awake all night is all of a sudden a very different place. They're, they're terrified. You know, this, this great light. It's, uh, I, I love how many times in Scripture uh, something, you know, supernatural appears and people are terrified, and then the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. Well, you know, good luck with that. But, um, but that's, that's what they say. And they say, no, this is about joy. You know, this is a joyful thing. This is a great thing that we're telling you. And so they did. They went down, and sure enough, it worked out just like they said. Uh, so why am I talking about that tonight? Well, first of all, 
I think the word is often about the word. You know, the, the word, Swedenborg says the word is all about the Lord. It's all about the word. So this is a story about the word. This is a story about our experience of the word. And you go out in that field, boy, it's with slogging through. I'm reading Ezekiel again. How's it going for you? I'm up to chapter like 12. I can't remember. Every night I start over again because I forget that I already read that part. You know. Okay. Let's fight to stay awake. Hang in there, buddy. All right. Okay. Good to see you. And, um, you know, you're reading the word and you're just trying to hang in there, you know, and it's thousands of times you've been reading it. But one night, pow! There's something living in there that you never thought was in there. And it not only knows who you are, it knows what's going on in town and tells you what to do next about it. It's like it's very, me, you know. It's not just like a light and you're seeing them from behind because they're appearing to somebody else. No, they're, they're there for you. It's kind of confronting. I mean, they're, they're afraid. Their, their first reaction is fear. It's so present. Like this boring field in the middle of nowhere is suddenly like, whoa, you are on the hot seat and angels are talking right to you about incredibly vital things. Does that happen to us with the word? Like you can hang in there reading the word forever and then at some point it's, whoa, I didn't realize that was in there. I've been in this field a million times. Never knew that that was possible. <laughs> that was on the menu. I never, I never knew that was on the menu. Angels suddenly bursting forth like that and announcing things specifically to us and telling us, go down into town. Uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 28, all the way to the left of your Bible. This is the story of Jacob's ladder, and we did a whole Bible study about this at one point. Very fun. Uh, Genesis 28, and let's pick up at verse 10 and read down to 17. There's more to the story than that. But this is Jacob, and he's out in the wilderness. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Mm. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This sort of supernatural, astounding vision he has in a dream of this ladder and angels going up and down, and there's God at the top. Go on. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Now, do you see the parallel here? We've gone back a long, like 1,500 years or something from that last story. But there's interesting similarities. There's differences. But he's out in the wilderness, been in the wilderness a thousand times. Same old, same boring spot. I guess I'll just lie down here as good as any other place. Just got too late. I have to sleep. But then all of a sudden, whoa, there's God himself talking to you about, hey, where you're lying right now, let me tell you about that. Let me tell you about your future. You know? Wow. Intense, right? All of a sudden, it's like another of these breakthrough things. Okay, go on. Verse 14. 
Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Christmas story there, the angels seemed to know exactly what was going on with this baby being born. Here's another thing about babies and so on. Here, you're going to have this, this big future. Here's what's going to happen to your family. And if it's very personal, you know, go on. Behold, I am with you mm. and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Wow, how personal is that? You're lying there in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden, oh, there's God speaking to you directly about your future, saying, I'm with you. I, you, no, nobody else. It's not a whole crowd of people. It's just me. It's just you. I'm talking to you about what's going to happen in the future. I'm not going to leave you. This is all going to work out, you know. And what does he say? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. That's right. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. That's right. This crummy piece of wilderness. Mm. Yeah, this is none other than the house of God. And he's afraid. Like it's just a dream. But still, when he wakes up, ooh, it's like shook him up, you know, because it was a breakthrough to something he was not expecting. Is this text flat as a pancake, nothing to see here, you know, read, read one, you know, law about heifers, you've read them all, you know, uh, <laughs> or is there more to it? When you're out in this wilderness of the text, is it capable of breaking through and God himself is speaking to you, calling you by name, telling you what your future is going to be like, you know, where things go from here, what all this is leading to. Wow, a breakthrough. He's been out in the wilderness lots in the course of his life, but this one night, it's suddenly, oh, that's very different than anything I ever experienced before. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That's how he felt about that wilderness. And I think that's another story in the Word that's about the Word, that's about us and how we contact the Lord through the Word. And so, yeah, the word can be a wilderness, and you can be wandering in it for a long time and not have any breakthrough or something. But it doesn't mean that's impossible. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that the word can't turn into, for lack of a better word, kind of an oracle for you, a personal message, almost terrifyingly, like very personal about you, what's going to happen to your generations and all that kind of stuff. And let's go to the third of these. Uh, Luke chapter 1, back up in the New Testament, the third gospel there. And I want to look at this at a little greater length, if we may. It's a little bit longer of a story. And this really just captured my imagination today. So let's read this and think about this. This is the story of Zacharias, who's a priest of the temple in Jerusalem. Let's start in Luke 1, verse 5, and we'll just... Keep going for a while there. Okay. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Oh. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay. 
so maybe this is a good time for me to tell you a little bit about, what did it call it? What was Abijah? Is that a course or a the, clan or oh, something? Division of Abijah? Division, division. Okay, division. Right. The priests back then, there were, to put it mildly, rather a lot of priests and Levites. Uh, in Jerusalem, now I looked up various different figures. Some people put the, the population of Jerusalem as low as 20,000, someone as high as 600,000. But most people had a figure like 60 or 80,000 people in Jerusalem at the time of the New Testament. Uh, they had 18,000 priests and Levites who took care of the business in the temple. Every day there were daily sacrifices, and those daily sacrifices, and it was a very precise schedule. It was all worked out and orchestrated where this one would wake up at a certain hour in the morning, and then when you heard him doing the ceremonial washing, that would be the signal to the next person to say this ritual thing to that person who prepares the animal for this morning sacrifices, who says this to this person. It's all highly, highly orchestrated. And the whole idea was that if all those priests had ceremonial purity, and they were all from one grand family line, uh, they were all related to each other, uh, if they did everything right, if they were ceremonially clean or pure, uh, then God would be present with the people. So on your average day, there were, it was absolutely 365 days a year that they were in there. There was never a day, you know, individuals got days off, but there was stuff going on every single day of the year. And the number of priests required to do every day approached a thousand, a thousand priests to get through one day in the temple. And so they divided these 18,000 priests into 24 divisions. There were 24 divisions of the priests, there were 24 divisions of the Levites. 7,200 priests, 9,600 Levites, and there were some 200 other high-level priests and, and um, the chief priests and so on. And uh, on the feast times, which were three times a year, it was all hands on deck. You'd have all 18,000 of them in there taking care of you. It was quite a massive priesthood. If the town only had 20,000 people in it, it was, a lot, it was a large percentage of the town. If it was 60,000, it's a little smaller. You know, who knows how big the town was. But a tremendous number of people involved in this priestly function. And so your particular rotation, you were only on for two weeks a year. You were on for a week doing your part of that particular week. So your division was on for a week. And then six months later, you're on for another week. And then it was a super special thing to be asked to do the incense, to offer the incense inside there. And chances are, this was the only time in Zacharias' life. He was old. He'd been doing this forever. But this was probably the first time he'd ever been selected to burn the incense in the temple. Because with 18,000 feet, you know, it takes a while to get, your number doesn't get called, you know. They have to have a special thing to keep track of who already went. And they draw lots and they figure out, okay, it's your, you know, the lot comes to him. So he's of this division of Abijah, one of these 24 divisions of priests. And, and his wife is also in that same priestly family. She's one of the daughters of Aaron. Okay, and what kind of people were they, would you say? 
And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Blameless, yes. There were 613 laws and ordinances and statutes and judgments that they were supposed to follow, dietary laws, how you're cleansed, how to do the rituals, all that sort of stuff. And these people were managing somehow to keep all 613 of those and walking blameless before the Lord, which is what you're supposed to do to keep God present. So we may think of it as just going through the motions. To them, these were very important motions. You know, this is what made God's presence possible was that you did these things right. You did them in the right order. They were all timed and orchestrated. I think of it as being a little bit like the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace or something. It's highly ritualized and it's on the clock and it's not about, oh, you're smiling or waving to the tourists. No, it's happening exactly this way every day, day in, day out, year in, year out, because that's what you've got to do for the people. Mm. Go on. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in the years. That's right. So he'd been doing this forever. He'd been going to the temple, doing his thing forever. Go on. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Yes, it was his turn finally. Right. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now nobody was allowed in there. You know, only one priest was allowed in there. So the fact that you have somebody else in there is like shocking. You know, that is not supposed to happen. There's this angel standing there on the right side of the altar of incense. Okay, so how does Zacharias feel? Well, if it's anything like Jacob, if he's anything, you know, he's going to be afraid, right? How does he feel? And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Right on schedule. That's good. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias. That's right. That's what you say. <laughs> okay, good. For your prayer is heard. Oh. Hmm. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Oh, we, this, the shepherds had the same kind of message about joy, didn't they? About the birth of the Lord. Here's the birth of John the Baptist in the previous chapter. It would be all this joy. Okay, go on. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And you see again, the angels seem to know an awful lot about what's going on reproductively with these people they're talking to. You know, they, they know exactly what's going on and say, here's what's going to happen and everything. It's, it's, a, it's intensely personal, right? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. Mm. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Yes. Now Zacharias had a question. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And we can only judge by context. Mary asks a kind of similar question. And she's fine, and the angel doesn't mind the question at all, and they just have a fabulous conversation. But when Zacharias says it, he gets in big trouble for it. It seems like he had kind of a negative or doubting 
kind of, even though he's a very good person, he'd been doing all the commandments and the ordinances and everything, when the angel actually showed up, he kind of blew it a little bit in his response. He didn't really, it didn't, didn't make rational sense to him or something. Go on. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Whenever you say something that makes the angel have to announce who he is, <laughs> you know, you've kind of blown it. Hey, do you not know who you're talking to? You know, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Yes, this is, I'm, hello, good news, okay? This is good news, okay? Okay. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And listen to this. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. This thing was like a clockwork machine. It ran every day in precisely the same way all the time. Whoever was doing it, it runs like clockwork. I can see why they marveled. Like, wow, the whole thing is broken down here. The guy didn't come out when he's supposed to come out. You know, something has happened. Go on. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. I think that's so interesting. Go on. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Yeah, so he's kind of gesturing and so on. But what does his face look like? Is he weeping? You know, does he look like he's, he's seen God or something? Uh, I don't know what it is. But they perceive that he's seen a vision in there. Why? I mean, it's not like it happened every day at 3 p.m. when you do light the incense or something. You know, uh, uh, this is very unusual. But somehow they perceive what had happened. Go on. Three more verses there. So it, was a, so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Yes. So you would go there to the temple for your week of ministry, and then you'd go home. Now, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months. Yes. Saying, so she had not even conceived at the time of the conversation, but she did afterwards, which is interesting. Okay saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, and we'll skip the Magnificat and all those wonderful things and skip over to verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. That's right, and then there was a debate about what he would be called, and you may remember that when he finally wrote the tablet and just says his name is John, then his mouth was opened, and what did he do with this newfound restored ability to speak in verse 64? Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Right, and look down at verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, he saying... prophesied? It's kind of... You have a few people in the Old Testament who were both priests and prophets, but it was rare. Ezekiel was a priest, you know, but it was usually one or the other. You know, you had a, you were a priest or a prophet. Here's a priest. He turns into a prophet after this experience. He, he starts prophesying. I don't think he'd done that before, but all of a sudden here he is and he's prophesying and he says this amazing thing about the, what's going to happen with the Lord and what's going to happen with his son, John the Baptist, who will prepare for it. And uh, let's just read verse 79 to cap that off. 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay, so uh, how I'm thinking about this is that just as with uh, Jacob in the wilderness, just as with the shepherds out in the field, uh, probably even above all of them, Zacharias has done this and done this and done it. It's a ritual. It doesn't change from decade to decade. He's done exactly the same thing a thousand times. And then he goes in one time and boom, there's an angel. And lo and behold, this angel is again saying very nosy things about his personal life and, you know, talking to him about what's going to happen to him, what's going to be in the future, what's going on. Every time we have these angel breakthroughs, they seem to know an extraordinary amount about that person's life. The ground you're lying on, I, me, you know, yeah, it's, they're talking to Jacob about that precise spot. He knows that, that Zacharias has been praying for a child. It hasn't happened. He said, hey, I've got good news. You know, knows all of that. Very direct, very personal, and it completely disrupts the time. You know, throws the whole thing off because he's in there too long. Because the wrong thing happened, an angel actually showed up you know, in response to these decades of worship. Um, so what I'm thinking about, I'm sure you can connect the dots for yourselves, good friends. But when we're reading scripture, are we like going into that temple? Good people following the commandments, doing the ordinances, boom, 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 boom. And we go in and we read and we read and we read and we read and dutifully, you know, just reading scripture, hanging in there forever going through the motions, read this, try to understand it, say a little prayer, okay, go to sleep, you know, next day comes. Uh, but then that doesn't, even if you've been in the temple a thousand times, 3,000 times, 10,000 times, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't an angel in there and that the angel couldn't speak to you. You may have missed it the first 10,000 times, but the story says to me that there can be an angel in there. And what's kind of astonishing is that Zacharias was a really, really good priest, doing all the thing, keeping the thing ceremonially pure. And then his son, which is announced in this way by this angel, is going to be the guy who begins, in one sense, to tear that whole thing down. That whole thing's going to go away all the ordinances and the rituals and the, you know, Jesus is coming. There's going to be a whole new system that's not about, oh, I walked here and so on. I heard the bells on the edge of the, you know, garment of so-and-so. And then I woke this person. I said this in Hebrew to this person. And then the, then they brought the goat and they slaughtered it. And then this happened. And, and uh, no, all that. It, it's a very good person of that old order was then called on by an angel to be the father of someone who is going to bring in something entirely new. Um, it's kind of amazing to me. So in a certain way, it's one of those weird little stories. They're just like, well, that was weird. He was struck dumb and you know, he interacts with the angel. It's fascinating to me that even though he had done all that preparation, he was a very good person, he really wasn't kind of ready for that interaction with the angel. He was kind of caught on his back foot, like he didn't handle it perfectly. He disbelieved what he was being told, and so he struck mute. And I'm sure there's a very valuable meaning in there. It's kind of neat because he'd been this priest, 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 
mute, 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 mute for nine months. Prophet, prophet, prophet. You know, he, he, he goes to the next level. Now he's prophesying and, and uh, saying astounding things. Like he's totally on board with this. You know, he's had all that time to think about it in silence. And uh, he's totally on board with his prophecy. is just absolutely gorgeous. One of the most gorgeous explanations of what the Lord is coming into the world to do. So is scripture this way? Is there an angel there by the altar and under the right conditions, the altar will appear to us? Is scripture, for lack of a better term, able to be a kind of an oracle to us when we're in that right condition? That no matter how many times you read before and you didn't see anything in there, one time the skies may part. One time you have a dream and there's a ladder that goes all the way up to God. One time an angel appears by the altar and tells you about your specific life, your specific role in the story, and exactly what's going on. You know, that's in common with these, with these three stories, and, and I love that. So to me, and in every case, they're afraid. They're, 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 fear is, whoa, it's more real than I thought. It's kind of, t if it's a ritual and you've done it a million times, then you're on top of it. Oh, I got this. I can show the young people how to do it. Done it a million times. Can do it in my sleep. But wait, this is new. This angel talking to me, I, I don't know what, what this is. It makes me afraid. I, I'm not really believing what I'm hearing. I feel bad about that, but I just don't believe it. And um, it's a whole, whole new kind of thing. Um, let's just briefly, just because I just love these so much, uh, Let's go really quickly to Isaiah again in the middle of your Bible to the right of the Psalms. I want to go to Isaiah 6 and just briefly look at when Isaiah the prophet was called. Because these stories of when the prophets are called are kind of similar to those three stories that we just focused on. So I just wanted to read this quickly. Uh, that um, Let's read just verses 1 to um, 5 there, or 6 maybe. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Mm. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is mm. the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's reaction? So he has his breakthrough. He sees God on his throne in heaven. And what's the, what does he say? So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then they come and one of, the, one of these angel characters comes and brings a coal and touches his lip and it says his sin is taken away. And look at verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Send me, that's right. His first reaction was, I'm a person of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips like that becomes so obvious when he breaks through to this inner level. His own uncleanness is kind of revealed. Uh, uh, but there's a cure for it in there too. And he becomes willing to be sent out. 
Let's go to the next prophet, which is Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1. These major prophets all have a kind of a story like this. Let's just read verses 4 to 9 maybe in here in Jeremiah chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Isn't that kind of like Moses' reaction? Like, hey, I stammer, you know, don't call me, kind of thing. Go on. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. Uh -huh. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Yes, my words in your mouth. Isn't that amazing? Okay, that's great. Uh, how about Ezekiel... There's so much great stuff in here, but let's just read Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. These are all going to the right as you go through your Bible. Ezekiel, sorry, which? Chapter 1. Chapter 1. And then just the last three verses of that chapter, 20. verses 26 to 28. Thank you. And above the firmament, la, 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 above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne. There's another throne. In appearance, like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Mm. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire mm. with brightness all around. Mm like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. Rainbow in a cloud. Isn't that interesting? All the way back in Genesis 8, you've got a rainbow in a cloud. Somewhere back there. Go on. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so when he saw it, he thought, oh, that's cool. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. Yeah, that's right. So just down, down he goes. Okay, and uh, look at Daniel chapter 10. So that's the next one to the right. Just a couple more of these. Uh, Daniel 10. Mm. Let's see. He saw this amazing vision that's described in these early, you know, his face was like lightning <coughs> in verse 6 there in his arm arms and feet and so on, his voice like the voice of a multitude. Mm. Let's pick up at verse 7 there. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Mm. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. <laughs> it's not considered polite, but uh, he, you know, he went deeply asleep, just crash, and he's like way out. 
while this, the angel is talking to him, and then the angel picks him up and gives him instructions and so on, and tells him to be strong, but still there's no breath in him. It's a very dramatic story. Mm -hmm. And let's look at uh, Revelation. Well, let's do Luke chapter 5 in the Gospels. Just two more of these. Luke 5 is when Peter first encounters the Lord, in this gospel at least. Let's read a bit of this story. So let's go from verse 1 to 8, something like that. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. This is Jesus, yep. And saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Yes, and this Simon is the Peter who becomes the famous disciple, but he isn't yet. This is the first time they've encountered each other in this gospel. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, so their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And Simon Peter said, that was so cool. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Yes. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. Yeah, it's a lot like Isaiah, just like, you and I should have nothing to do with it, I'm just telling you, you know. Uh, so aren't they a little bit similar, these encounters between the prophets and this vision of the divine, and they fall on their faces, or their lips are unclean, or they need purifying in some way. And uh, I think these are very similar stories. And there's Revelation all the way to the right of your Bible. Let's look at chapter 1 in Revelation. And uh, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and he hears this voice speaking to him, and he turns around, and what he sees... Is starts in verse 12 there of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. Okay, and Swedenborg explains that when it refers to him as one like the Son of Man, in verse 13, as we learned last time, the Son of Man means the Lord as the Word. This is a depiction of the living force that's inside the Word. He's seeing inside the Word. It, it's this awesome image, and how does he react in verse 17? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's right. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, 
do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Same drill, right? He's afraid, and he says, don't be afraid. So these are these sort of breakthrough stories. Partly, uh, I like these stories. I think they were very meaningful to Swedenborg because I think he went through kind of a breakthrough. He'd been hanging in there with the scripture forever, and then pow, it started to you know take on something more meaningful. Uh, I, it just occurred to me now, as Bible study's been unfolding, that of course there's this whole angle to scripture that, that at least the Old Testament stories that we've been reading were what Jesus was reading. So, and, and in mostly all these stories are about the Lord and his life in this world and his death and resurrection and so on. So, did he have that experience? Is this a story about Jesus going out in the fields, going out, you know, into the wilderness? Uh, is this a story about him going into the temple again and again and again? And then the divine that's within him, his, his own soul. But does that reveal itself to him in some shocking way at some point where he kind of breaks through, you know, because obviously he had some kind of a breakthrough at some point. He, he just started as, you know, his, his outer self was just an ordinary kid with an ordinary, you know, mind, uh, but with this divine soul inside. Was this his story, too, of kind of a, a breakthrough and like, whoa, I, I didn't realize all that was right there in a very, very personal way with a mission for me of what I'm supposed to do with guidance for how I'm, I'm supposed to do what I do. And that, by following that, is how he became the Word made flesh. So I would just encourage you, friends, to, to hang in there with your reading of the Word. Uh, I hope that these Bible studies have been a little bit of that feeling that you're sort of going through, and what does this mean, what does that mean, and then you get the little breakthrough or something. might not be a whole angel you might just see a Levite or something. I, I don't know. But, but, the, uh, but <laughs> I, hope, I hope they've been good. And I love the idea that if we keep hanging in there with Scripture, even if it's always seemed to us just like the temple and we're just going through the motions, it's another field, another night looking after the sheep, uh, it's just another wilderness and we're just lying down to sleep. But then, pow, there's something so amazing. And when you see that and it terrifies you, you realize why that most of the time that's covered. Why that's hidden, it might be hard to understand, but, oh, it's so overwhelming. It terrifies people who are actually very well ready to handle it, but it still knocks, knocks them back. It's so overwhelming when you experience that divine. And it's not only so transcendently amazing and glorious, but also knows all about you and has instructions. Here's the next thing for you to do. Here's the next thing. Here's the next thing. Pretty cool. So if we hang in there, maybe we can have one of those little breakthroughs, friends. And let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the Word made flesh. We thank you, Lord, for bowing the heavens and coming down into this world, for going through your life in this world for dying, being resurrected, and becoming one with the divine that was within you throughout that journey. Thank you, Lord, for that deeper layer in your word, for its living human quality, that quality that knows us and our whole story. Thank you, Lord, for parting the heavens now and then and talking to us when we really needed about what we need to do next, how we can serve you. 
Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. It'll increase our chances of a moment like that.